in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Consider him. Now, him in this passage is Jesus. It's telling us to take a look at, to consider, to think about Jesus. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you, have le- if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peace of the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Um, before I get started, um, this is obviously, I said earlier, kind of a special day because of the weather and, and the endurance it took for you to show up. And I really want to say some thank yous. Van Paul and Narcy were here yesterday. They're, they aren't here to uh, receive your appreciation. They were in the back now, but they were here yesterday shoveling all the walks and making sure that they were as safe as could be for the people that would show up this morning. And then I pull into the parking lot this morning. Casey Bratcher is there with a snow shovel that he was there for about two hours just just doing working on the on the the uh, sidewalks and the parking lot trying to make it safe and and uh, Cameron got out there and helped him some of you others might have as well but can we give Casey and Cameron and Paul and Narcy a hand for their help with that this morning really grateful for that um, so back to the the passage we've been looking uh, at the ways that God has chosen uh, has ordained to govern the church and so we started out, of course, we talked about Jesus as the head of the church. Then we moved on for a couple of weeks and talked about the offices of the elder and the office of the deacon in the church. And now we're going to make a little bit of a shift from who God uses to govern the church to how governance in the church is to proceed. Um, how, the question is that we're asking, how does God keep the church in order? See, as followers of Jesus, raise your hand if you're a follower of Jesus. Okay, most of you, if not all of you, if, if, as followers of Jesus, you have been designated. You've been given a name. There's, there's a word that the Bible has as a descriptor of who you are, and that word is disciple. You've been designated a disciple, just like the 12 guys that Jesus chose to work with him in his ministry when he uh, began his ministry on planet Earth. You're disciples. And, and what that word means, it's not a big spiritual word. It just simply means that you are a student of Jesus Christ. We've talked about that before. And this is significant to the discussion that I want to have with you today. Uh, I want you to notice... First of all, the similarity between the English words disciple 
and discipline. How similar that those words are. And what the reason I want you to take a look at that is because this helps us to grasp what is meant by the phrase, which I took as the title of my message this morning, the discipline of the Lord. Because we have different you know, ideas of what that word discipline means. So let me just kind of hopefully clarify. A disciple is who you are. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a disciple. That describes you. But discipline is what happens to us or what happens in us or is what is given to us in order to make us a disciple. You cannot be a disciple without discipline. Yay! If learning is what a disciple does, then discipline is the teaching method, the soul teaching method that's used to help us to learn what we're supposed to be learning as disciples. But oftentimes, I said this, we we get kind of freaked out when we start using this kind of language. Why? Because we have a tendency to, to hear that word discipline and we confuse discipline with punishment. Raise your hand if you're guilty. You think, oh, discipline, that sounds a little scary to me. Because we we equate it with punishment. A lot of times as children, when we were punished, we were told we were being disciplined, and and certainly we may have been, but but, uh, we get those concepts confused. But let me kind of hopefully clarify for you today. So what discipline does is it, it, it concerns our growth and our transformation into holiness, into the person that God wants us to be. But punishment, on the other hand, and and get this straight, punishment always is about judgment. It's about condemnation. It's ultimately about our destruction for sin. And we're going to take a look at that more deeply in just a moment. But I just want to clarify that. So just, just to sum it up, discipline is always, for a believer, for a disciple, discipline is always something to be embraced and even pursued. We should be pursuing discipline, whereas punishment is something that we must be delivered from by Jesus Christ. We have to be delivered from punishment. But discipline is something we want. It should be something we invite. It's something we pursue and something we want. And let me tell you something. If you still have this overwhelming fear of punishment, you may not understand what it means to be saved. Because being saved, experiencing the salvation of God, means that you have been freed from punishment. All right, now your tepid response is telling me a lot of you don't understand what I'm trying to tell you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the concept of punishment is null and void for you. You will not, you cannot be punished, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. So hold your place right there. So our text today, we'll go back to Hebrews chapter 12, it begins by telling us that Jesus, we're to to look to Jesus and consider Jesus as our example. And and Jesus as our example encourages us to faithfully endure the discipline that is necessary to our lives as disciples. So we look at Jesus, we consider Jesus. We're told to consider him for this purpose so that we will not grow weary and faint-hearted. What the writer is saying there is when we look at Jesus and what he endured, it prompts us to go, okay, well, things can get a whole lot worse or things aren't as bad as they seem or, or, or maybe there's a purpose behind my suffering. There's a lot of reasons why we consider it. And, and, and so if Jesus endured the cross, if, if we had started a little earlier in this chapter, we would have read that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, 
for the joy that was set before him. That's what the Bible tells us. So he, he proceeded through the pain of the cross because he knew on the other side of the cross there was great joy awaiting him. And so we consider Jesus so we don't give up because we say, man, I'm bearing this cross. And we say, oh, wait a minute. On the other side of Jesus' cross, there was joy. There was reward. There was harvest. And so now I, I, I can keep going. I can keep going because I've considered that. Y'all with me this morning? So how is Jesus our example? How does this work? Well, Hebrews says earlier in the book, it says that Jesus, and this is a troubling phrase for some people. It says that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. And then later, if that's not bad enough, it says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And you read that, and if you have a concept like I do, a very high concept of the deity of Jesus Christ, he's God, he's perfect, there's no lack in anything. What is all this stuff about being made perfect and learning obedience? What does that mean? Wasn't he already perfect? Wasn't he already obedient? Now, y'all think that's a trick question, so no one's answering. Wasn't he perfect? Wasn't he obedient? Well, of course he was. So Sam Storms wrote an article, a helpful article, and he writes that this perfecting does not mean that Jesus was in any way sinfully flawed or it doesn't mean that he was morally imperfect and had to be purified and cleansed. Rather, this obedience and this perfecting was a process, listen carefully, a process by which he was shown to, uh, to be fully equipped and qualified for his office. In other words, to be made perfect in this context was to be proven, to be tested, to, to have the integrity of his being shown. Let me read one more quote from Sam Storms. He says, the, the perfection here has to do with completing one's preparation to fulfill a task. That's really important. He's saying that Jesus was fully qualified as our high priest to make a sufficient atonement for sin and was able to secure for us a righteousness that becomes ours through faith because he faithfully obeyed his father and offered up a sinless sacrifice for sin. So Jesus is being prepared for something. He's being prepared for the role of being our high priest. That's what all this being made perfect and, and uh, learning uh, obedience, all that, that's what all that means. So we consider Jesus, going back to, to the, where it tells us to consider him, we consider Jesus in our own experience of disciplinary suffering because, listen, we too are being prepared to fulfill a task. We are. Your suffering, your discipline has a purpose. You're being prepared. You're being tried. You're being tested. Your integrity is being, is being proven. That's what this is all about. What is that task? Your task, my task, is, is being made ready to eternally display the redemptive glories of God the Father even in the middle of a world that's rejected Him. That's what we're being tested and proven to be able to do to display his glory, to be a walking billboard for what an awesome God he is. See, patience when we're suffering, patience in our discipline, proclaims that what we have in Christ is far more valuable to us than a carefree life. It, 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 our willingness to submit to the Lord's purposes for our discipline declares his lordship right over us. We've talked about this a lot in recent months, but I am not my own. I have been bought with a price, and, and, and my endurance and suffering, my endurance and discipline proves that. It, it demonstrates that to the world. 
It also is demonstration of our recognition of the superiority of God's design and his destiny for my life. When I endure suffering patiently, I'm saying, hey, God has a better idea for my life than I have. That's a tough conclusion sometimes to come to, but it's true. You will never, ever, ever regret letting God be in control of your life. I love this. First Peter, in his first book, he, he writes about this, about, about this, I, this thing that God is preparing us for. In verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Now pause there. He's saying that in the middle of these terrible, inexplicable trials, we do what? We rejoice. We celebrate. We pop the corks and have a party. Right in the middle of our trials. Why? Why? Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which, as he describes, is more precious than gold that perishes even though it's tested by fire. You chuck the gold in the fire and it perishes. It just melts away to nothing. But your faith only grows stronger when it's tested by the fire. And he says that that faith, that tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Someday you you feel, some of you right now feel like you're in the middle of a furnace and I'm telling you there is a day coming when you will be on the other side and Jesus will be fully revealed when you're going to see what all that refining process, how much gold that produced. You're going to see it clearly. So we rejoice in our suffering and we regard it as necessary, not abnormal, for the purpose of, or for the process rather of preparing us for God's purposes in our lives. So faith, what we learn from 1 Peter, is a commodity that is only, listen to this carefully, that's only as valuable as it is proven. This is why I repudiate the, the, the so-called faith movement, the prosperity gospel, because it says, have faith, it's a magic charm, and everything will go fine and dandy, and you'll go uh, skipping through the tulips. But that's not even how faith right here in First Peter tells us it works. It says it must be tested, it must be brought through the fire to be proven to be genuine. And that always involves suffering. The disciples could not have faith that Jesus was stronger than the storm if they weren't in the middle of the boat, in the middle of the storm with Jesus. They wouldn't know that. Thirdly, this thing that this First Peter passage teaches is that, is that, that our faith is never tested with the goal of destroying us, but it's tested with the, with the goal of granting us a testimony that's going to result in praise and glory being lavished on Jesus. That's the idea. When things go haywire and you endure greatly, I think it's, it, you know, it just creates praise. You guys, some of you are familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata, who uh, at 17 years old back in the 60s, she dove into a lake that was much shallower than she thought. She broke her neck. She's been in a wheelchair ever since for 51 years now. She's been in a wheelchair, complete quadriplegic, and she's gone all over the world and preached the gospel and brought this message of how that she rejoices in God in the middle of her suffering. Well, two years ago, she found out on top of all that, she had a cancer diagnosis. And she endured all that happens with that, with chemo and all that stuff. Well, guess what? Recently, she found out she has another cancer diagnosis, and this time terminal. And guess what she's doing? She's rejoicing. And and what's happening is, this is what I want you to see. 
That testimony of her faithfulness in suffering does not make me look at her and say, man, God gave her a raw deal. What a lousy thing. It makes me go, wow, what a big God she must serve. What an awesome God she must serve if she praises him and rejoices through the middle of that garbage. What an awesome, awesome God. The writer of Hebrews also points out that the necessary discipline that comes our way will always be incomparable to the suffering of Christ that he's endured for us. All of us, let me tell you something. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, it's bad, isn't it? Say it. Go ahead, tell him. Now look back at him and say, chin up, because it ain't as bad as what Jesus went through. This is the way the writer of Hebrews said it. He says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So sometimes, be honest, with the small crowd, we all love Jesus. Just be honest. How many, of you time, how many times do you, do you feel like you're walking around with a splinter in your finger complaining to the guy who was nailed to the wood? Raise your hand if you're honest about that. After this, the writer of Hebrews encourages us, encourages us to look at what our discipline is teaching in us, what it's working in us. I love this. I'll put it up on the screen for you. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now, what he's doing here, what he's about to do next, is he's making a direct quote from Proverbs chapter 3. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord, listen, 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 listen. For the Lord disciplines the one he, what? What does God's discipline say about his thoughts towards you? It says he loves you. And he chastises every son whom he receives. You want to know that you're loved and accepted by the Lord? Look for his hand of discipline. Because that's the evidence. That's how he shows us. That, that he loves us and he cares for us. He quotes Proverbs three eleven through 12, like I said, to the Jews that he's writing to. They would all have been familiar with this. And he tells them that though this passage was originally written to Solomon and, and, or by Solomon to his sons, that he's telling them to read it as an exhortation directly from God. And, and in it, he's telling them that God is calling these people in, in, uh, in this passage, in he, the, these Hebrews that he's writing to, he's saying that God is calling him, them their, his own children. I wish that we all, myself included, could learn to read Scripture like that. Sometimes we either read it as like a book of magic charms or we read it way too academically. But what the writer is saying here, he's saying to, to remember that the Bible, though it's written in a specific historical context and to a specific audience, has something to say to us all who trust him right now in 2018. It's a message to you. It's a letter to you. God wants you to hear what he wants to say to you and about you through the Scriptures. This is what Paul meant when he wrote in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for making us complete and equipped for every good work. So from the passage in Proverbs, he also makes this point that discipline is evidence, not that God is angry, but that he both loves and accepts us. Now let me ask you a question. You can raise your hand on this one. Have you ever been in a large retail store and seen a child that was completely out of control? Raise your hand. Some that you would have willingly volunteered to help the mother or father correct on the path. Raise your hand. Be honest. Be honest. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you have helped the mother or father get the child on the path. I don't know about you, but when I see these absolute crazy meltdown public, you know, demanding kind of things, I generally 
generally do not hold the child culpable for his or her behavior, generally. But what I do do is I look to the parents and I wonder why they would be so negligent as to let this three-year-old tyrant's reign of terror continue. I mean, I look at it and I wonder that. Why? Am I judging them? No. Raising kids is hard. Amen? Oh, come on. Amen? Amen. It's tough. But see, correction in that moment. Everybody's kid can have a meltdown. But when when the parent refuses to correct them, correction in that moment would be absolute proof that that kid is loved. It wouldn't be... Proof that the, the, the parents hate the kid, or it wouldn't be proof that, the, that, the, that they're just trying to control them and, and run their life. It would be proof positive that they love their child if they would just correct them. It would be proof that they have their absolute best future in mind, that they desire their best future if they would just correct them. See, without discipline given to the child, neither one of those things, love or hope for the future, can be assumed. Neither one of them. It is not loving to let a child, a three-year-old child, run the roost. It's not loving at all. The writer of Hebrews says that it is for discipline that you have had to endure. God is treating you as sons. And he just told us, sons that he loves. And by the way, that Greek word there, that's sons and daughters. Ladies, you are not excluded from this. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there who his father does not discipline? The suffering that you would avoid, that you would give anything to get out of, is not judgment. It's discipline. God's shaping you. He's molding you. He's making you. It's proof that you are his beloved child. He not only loves you. Listen to me carefully. I get so sick of this this raping of the grace message that God does absolutely love you just as you are. But he loves you way too much to leave you like you are. Way too much. The next verse makes that clear. He says, if you're left without discipline... If you're left without discipline, listen, in which all we, we've all participated, he says, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He's saying, if you look around your life and there's no dis- discipline coming from the Lord, that may tell you something. Listen to me. Baby daddies don't discipline their kids. Baby daddies make babies. Sometimes they're not even present. They just come and go. But see, discipline is the gift of a loving, present, engaged dad, the kind of dad that God exemplifies. That's the kind of God that we have. He says, besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of our spirits and live? He's saying that we should look to God in his hand of discipline and say, God, thank you. Thank you. I respect you because I know what you're doing. Uh, I know that what you're doing in me is good. Johnny Erickson Tata can look up toward heaven and she can say, I don't get it, I don't like it, I don't understand it, but I know it's good. I know what you're doing in me is for your praise and for your glory. Some of us balk at the thought of discipline, not because we confuse it with with, uh, punishment, but because we have, have had on this earth harsh or abusive even moms and dads. And I'm not trying to ignore that fact. Often we judge God against our dad, our earthly dad's performance. And God falls under a very negative light because of that. But I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. I'm I'm a guy that's had to do this very process in my own life. I want to encourage you to do whatever it takes to reverse that. Instead of saying, God must be like my dad who failed, 
I want you to judge every father from the very best of them. And I know some of you love your dads, but from the very best of them to the very absolute worst of them. Instead of judging God against them, start judging them against God. And realize that, that though your father failed you, God has not failed you. And that where your dad wasn't perfect, God is perfect. And God's never failed you. He never will. He's never going to leave you. And he's never going to stop loving you. He says this about our earthly dads. He says, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good. And think about Think about where you're at right now and think about some of the tough situations that you have in your life. Maybe you're in a terrible job or maybe you need a job. Maybe you've got sickness. Maybe you've got relational things that are just going nuts. And I want you to look at that this morning as God's discipline and say to yourself, this is for my good. This is for my good. God is working out what he wants to work out in me for so that I can just just be an absolute blazing reflection of his glory. This is for my good, he says, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Wow. Wow. In the Old Testament, God said, I am the Lord. My glory I will not give to another. But something amazing has happened. See, because we are in Christ, and the Bible says actually that you've died and your life is hidden with God in Christ. Because you're, within, because you're in Christ, through the discipline of the Lord, you are made to actually share in the holiness and glory of the Lord. Mm. And it's worth it. It's worth whatever it feels like right now. Listen to me carefully. It's worth it. I have four adult sons that I am very, very proud of. All four of them are in the room right now. Y'all wave your hands so everyone can see how good looking you are. Go ahead, Curtis. Don't be all shy over there. So I love these guys. I love them. I am so proud of them. They are wise sons. They're diligent sons. They're upright sons. And most of all, the thing that humbles me the most is that they love and are striving to serve Jesus Christ with all their heart. I love that. Nothing could make me happier to report. But they're all four adults now, don't have any little kids, and, and because of that, we're at a very weird juncture in our relationship. Some of you older parents have already been there, and quite honestly, I'm not meaning to jab at you, but some of you younger parents are absolutely oblivious that this day is coming for you sooner than you think. And this is where we're at. I'm looking at these four boys, and I realize that my full disciplinary input has been past tense made. I'm done. There's nothing more. I mean, I would love to whoop Curtis sometimes, but he would whoop me back, and I would not appreciate that. That would not be good. I'm done. My full disciplinary input has been made. I used to be the captain of the ship, and now I can only, by their gracious invitation, be asked to advise. That's it. That's it. I can't do it. Can't ground them, can't beat them, can't do anything stinks so these four guys are truly on their own now only time is going to tell only time is going to tell if ginger and i did a good job or a poor job and time will tell if they were listening or not we discipline them just as the writer of hebrews says we discipline them for a short time as it seemed best now what they have to learn is how to use what we tried to invest in them but listen to me I'm not afraid 
I'm not afraid of that juncture in our relationship for two reasons. One, I already said it, their demonstrated character. And two, because as I've had to step back, the discipline of the Lord in their life goes on and on and on and on and on. See, now that Ginger and I have retired, God is determined that these four boys are going to share in his holiness. I love that. You see, in reality, it brings into sharp relief the fact, young parents, that Ginger and I were never anything more than temporary stewards of God's own son. God gave them to us just to steward for a very short while. Now they're back to just being his kids. He is their eternal father. Now, there may be many ways that God will discipline my kids from here on out. And there's going to be many ways that God disciplines the rest of us who believe in him and are submitting to his will in our lives. Sometimes God is going to directly discipline us. Well, how does that look? He does this mostly through the, the circumstances that he will allow all of us to experience, especially those unpleasant circumstances. Has anybody here ever experienced unpleasant circumstances? Anybody? Liars. Um, he may use sickness, he may use lack, he may use persecution, he may even use injustice at times in order to reinforce our trust as well as building our confidence that he's enough. But he'll do it. He may use other people. Oh, I hate that. Life would be so much great if we just didn't have other people to deal with, right? right? Same on the road as it is in, in you know, work and everywhere else. See, in the Old Testament, God often used the Syrians or the Babylonians to accomplish his corrective purposes in Israel. He would say in books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, he would say, I'm sending this army against you to correct you. And it was never pretty when that happened. And God's going to do that in your life. The, the person, and why is that important? Because think about the person right now that you wish could be removed from your life. Think about it. And I want you to just imagine that that person might just be the one that God has placed there to make you what he wants you to become. Well, I didn't get any amens on that because surely God is wrong, right? The person that you wish you could just hit the ejector seat on is the person that God may have put in your life to make you who he wants you to be. But he also uses people who are on our team, people that love us and have our best interests in mind, parents, spouses, teachers, bosses, and the church. Now, we're going to talk more about the church's role in all of this next week. We said it earlier, and I want you to, uh, I'm hammering away on this point because this is the one I want you to take home the most. God's correction is never a punishment, never a punishment. It's not that you did something naughty and God is going to show you, you know, uh, that you're in trouble. God's, God's discipline, his correction may be because you did something naughty and God is trying to free you from the poison that's in your soul. But it's for life. It's not for condemnation. It's for life. It's not for judgment. The goal of God's corrective activity is always for our growth and benefit. If you've placed your trust, this is what you've got to get. If you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, any punishment that you ever have deserved or that you ever will deserve has already fallen on Jesus. Because of this, we shouldn't fear the discipline and the correction of the Lord. In fact, as I said earlier, we should seek it. We should look for it. We should want it. Psalms 139 is weird. I didn't know Paul was going to read from Psalms 139 this, this morning, but he did. Psalms 139, verse 23, he says, David cries out, he says, Search me, O God. Wow, what an invitation that is. Search me, O God. Go looking around. Get your flashlight out, Jesus, and look about what's in me. He says, Know my heart. 
Try me. There's that idea, that proving, that testing. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me, anything that grieves the Lord and lead me in the way everlasting. David is looking up to heaven, to the throne of God, and he's saying, bring it on. I want to be what you want me to be. Come and get me. Come and search me. Come and know me. Another way that God disciplines us is through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. He internally prompts us to judge our own attitudes and activities and to willingly conform them to God's will and to his purposes. See, Scripture calls us to submit to discipline. This is what Jesus meant when he told us that we should take up our cross and follow him. It's what Paul meant when he said that we're to put to death whatever is earthly residing in us. This means that we don't ignore things. We don't say, ah, that's just the way I am. We don't ignore things until we're heavily convicted of them. But we're looking, our eyes are always open, we're actively seeking to live in holiness and desiring whatever it is that pleases the Lord. Don't you just want to be pleasing to the Lord? Our passage concludes with a very profound observation. I kind of chuckle when I hear it. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Boy, that should get a hearty amen, right? Think about that. Most of us recognizing its unpleasantness avoid discipline at all costs. And this is a huge mistake. No one enjoys being disciplined. No one ever says, whew, I cannot wait to cut out all that fat and sugar and salt and drop 30 pounds. I cannot wait to live on only caffeine and pull all-nighters so I can get my degree. I can't wait to scrimp and save so that someday I can retire. What fun! No one says that. Come on. Quite frankly, we often can't see the promised reward because of the seemingly high cost of accomplishing it. If it wasn't the case, then all of us would be skinny, all of us would be well-educated, and all of us would be financially secure, right? But see, what the discipline of the Lord is producing in us is worth vastly more than any of those other things. Vastly more. All those things are just temporal things. But see, what we're pursuing is an eternal harvest of glory for the Lord. The Greek word used for discipline in that passage in Hebrews that we've been looking at, it means whatever cultivates the soul, especially by correcting mistakes and curbing passions, instruction which aims at increasing virtue. See, the Lord's discipline always results in a holistic life improvement. The quality of our life becomes better when we submit to the, to the uh, Lord's discipline. See, instead of hearing the word discipline and thinking of some child sent to the corner in shame, God's discipline should make us think rather of, of an athlete in training for the Olympic Games or maybe a soldier at boot camp getting ready to fight a war. God is cultivating our souls so that we can accomplish what he wants us to accomplish and become what he wants us to become. And all of this for his glory. See, we're looking through discipline. We're looking for something that cannot fade, something that won't expire, something that can't be shaken, can't be stolen. And and all of this to the praise and the glory of our great God throughout eternity. And that is the ultimate nature of this promise. Though discipline is not pleasant at the time, Hebrews says later, it yields the the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We've been made forever righteous. Listen, we've been made forever righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross through his resurrection and ascension. In other words, you're not working to become righteous. You're working to live out the righteousness that you've already been made. 
You're working to, you're already righteous. Jesus made you righteous through his death and resurrection. And now all you're trying to do is live out that righteousness um, through, through holiness. And, and so uh, we know that we've been made righteous. So it's through the discipline of the Lord that we see the fruit of right, the righteousness that we already possess. But this promise, notice this, don't skip over it too fast, is conditional. Only to those willing to be trained by discipline, only those will see the fruit of it. Only those. If you ever wonder why someone seems more spiritually mature, it's likely because of their willingness to patiently endure discipline and suffering. If, if Johnny Erickson Tata could wheel herself in here today, we would all be amazed hearing her testimony and we would say, man, that's a spiritually mature woman. Why? Because she submitted to the discipline of the Lord in such a beautiful, glorious way. And you know what the best part of her promise is? That wheelchair ain't going to heaven with her. Those tumors are not going to heaven with her. So what she's experiencing now, it's, it's temporary. It's for a little while. It would do us well to remember that. I think of the saints that have made the deepest impact on my life. Invariably, it's those that have suffered for Christ without resisting or complaining. I'm talking about the persecuted. Missionaries who have given up luxuries to spread the gospel. Those that have endured sickness and loss. Though the discipline wasn't unpleasant, they endured And what a harvest, what a harvest their lives have brought forth. And may it be so with every one of us. We're about to come celebrating. Party's about to start. We're about to come celebrating to the Lord's table. And as we come and you're considering what God's word has taught us this morning about discipline and suffering, let me give you a passage to consider. Now, this passage comes from the same place as our regular communion passage in 1 Corinthians 11. After the uh, place where Paul is describing for them the Lord's or the Last Supper, where Christ broke the bread and shared the cup, and he said, "This is my body. This is the new covenant in my blood." He challenges them about the way that they in the church at Corinth at that time were participating in the Lord's Supper right there in their own church in Corinth. It was common for the wealthy and the well-to-do to edge out the less fortunate, and they would gobble up all the food, all the bread, and they would drink down all the wine before the poor could partake. It was so bad that Paul even alludes to the fact that people were getting drunk at the Lord's table. In this context, guess what he talked to the church about? He talked to them about the discipline of the Lord. This is what he writes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, in an unworthy manner rather, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Listen to these next phrase, this next phrase. Let a person examine himself. Take a deep look. Consider your heart. And then so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, listen, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And listen, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But, and we get so caught up in the weak and ill and died, but there's this huge three-letter word that's so awesome. It says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But then we are, But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the, with the world. See what I told you there? That's not about, that's not about punishment. It's about discipline. We're, we're corrected so that we won't be judged along with the world. See, Paul's not bringing down the hammer of punishment. He's pleading with the church. He, he, using the terms that we read in the other passage, he's saying, hey, guys, you're not bringing forth any fruit of righteousness. So he encourages them, do the honest work of examining yourselves in the light of the gospel, in the light of what is happening at this table as the body gathers to feast on Christ. 
And in the light of what this table represents, the sacrifice of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. He's saying, look at yourself, examine yourself. He tells them that if they fail to do this, if they fail to examine themselves, that if they continually mock the sanctity, the beauty, the majesty of the table, that God will do the examining. I'm telling you, if you don't examine yourself, God will examine you for you. They will literally in Paul's words, eat and drink judgment on themselves. In fact, he says that God has already begun to discipline them. Many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And then he says that phrase that I pointed out, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. We must be on the lookout for things that exist in all of us. You may have people in this room that you think are more spiritual than you or less spiritual than you. And either way, you're wrong. Because all of us are on level ground at the cross. All of us. There's no spiritual giants. There's no castaways. We are all on level footing. Sinners in need of a Savior. We've got to be on the lookout for the things that exist in every single one of us. And let me tell you something. If you're breathing air on terra firma, they're in you. They're not going to be gone until you stand before the Lord. So seek them out. Ask yourself. In fact, everybody bow your heads. Close your eyes. Answer these questions within yourself. Where am I will, unwilling, where am I failing to uphold the holiness of the Lord? Am I one way at church and another way at work or school in the privacy of my home? Where am I failing to humbly submit to his lordship and let him be the boss? Where are we bowing to idols of our culture and of our age, maybe even justifying our own pride My prayer today is that God will help us to see these things clearly and to judge them as the evil that they are and put them to death conclusively. Just keep your eyes closed and let God talk to you for a little bit. The best way not to be corrected and disciplined severely by the Lord is to be preemptive whenever the Holy Spirit shines His light on all that garbage in our fallen natures. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. See, this is God's purpose in the discipline that he so graciously brings our way. And believe me, it's an act of grace. His goal is our redemption, not our condemnation. Paul says when we're judged by the Lord, we're, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So as you come to the table today, my prayer is that you will come rejoicing in Jesus' victory over your sin. And I mean rejoicing. Come with praise in your heart. That Jesus defeated sin, he defeated the devil, he defeated the power of death. But I pray that while you're coming with rejoicing, that you can simultaneously come repenting of all of these things that the Holy Spirit is illuminating in you right now. Things like lust, things like anger and fear and hatred and unforgiveness and impatience and greed and pride and deceptions and addictions and 10,000 other things that I didn't mention, all of them unique and personal to you. Rejoicing, repenting, how can you do that at the same time? Listen to me, rejoicing and repenting are not, are not mutually exclusive. We, we rejoice because we've been invited to repent. And when we are truly repent, all we can do is rejoice. They go quite well together. But how do we know what we need to repent of? Well, the first step is right now with your eyes closed, your head bowed, just ask the Holy Spirit. I dare you to ask the Lord what it is that he wants to put his finger on this morning. What is it that he wants to, to evict from you, to, to, to discipline you and form you and mold you and make you into the image of his holiness and glory?
Ask him. Second step is to listen. Don't talk over him. Don't start moaning and wailing about all the stuff that you think is all wrong. And you let him talk to you about what he wants to deal with. Ask him, then listen. And as he's speaking, the third step is to obey, not to resist him. Rather, just submit to him. Take a moment do that right now. I'm going to put Psalms 139, 23, and 24 back on the screen. You can open your eyes and look at it. I want you to meditate on its words and make them your prayer for a little while. This is what repentance looks like. Just drink in those words. Make them your prayer. That's why the Psalms are given to us, to give us an architecture for prayer. Could I have our communion workers come forward, please? We're going to do something a little bit differently. Usually, you know, you just kind of walk down the back aisles and you grab your stuff, eat it, and go back to your... um, back to your chair. What I want you to do is I want you to come through the line just like you normally would and grab the elements and then I want us all to bunch up kind of in this front area, pray together. we got a small crowd, we can pull this off today. So I, I really would just want us to have a, a little moment of community um, as we do this. So let me just read to you what the scriptures say that we're so familiar with and then we'll, we'll come forward and then once everybody receives their elements, just hold it and we'll pray together as a body. The Bible says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come and receive the elements. Now come in close so that we can get everybody in. I don't bite much. I'm going to pray for you, and um, I want you to just uh, receive this prayer for yourself and, um, and make it your own. If there's something you want to express to the Lord on your own, then don't get so, you know, wrapped up in what I'm saying that you can't do that. So let me just pray for you. Father, every one of us, as I just said, stand here, Lord, with, with things that, um, God, we know are not pleasing to you, Lord. We all have habits and attitudes and uh, things that are very deeply ingrained in us, Lord, that, that we know that you would, as David prayed, search us and shine your light on, Lord God. And Lord, we, we want to ask you, Lord, to have free reign to do that in us, Lord. Make us who you want us to be. Produce the fruit of righteousness, Lord, that that reflects the righteousness that we've been given in Christ. And Father, we, we do this now at this moment around your table because we recognize that we would have no hope of holiness, no hope of forgiveness, no hope of even being loved by you if it wasn't for the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so, God, we don't come here scared to death that we're going to just wallow in our rottenness, Lord God. We look at the triumph of Jesus represented by this bread and this wine, and we say, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you have conquered every, every little pocket of sin that could ever exist in us. You have defeated its power. You have defeated um, all of it, Lord. And so, so we thank you for that. We thank you that your body was broken so that ours could be whole, that your blood was spilled so that we could remain unstained, Lord. And so, Father, right now, as we partake of your body and of your blood, we, we ask you, Lord, to um, make us new, Lord. Make us reflections of your glory. 
Lord, we, we just ask you to forgive us for the times we've resisted your discipline. And we say, Lord, uh, have your way in us. Do what you will in us. God, search us, know us, see if there's any grievous way in us. Lead us in the way everlasting. And we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.